Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16th, 2020, I've served as the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is part one, premonitions and origins. January 5th, 2020, World Health Organization. On the 31st of December, 2019, the WHO China country office was informed of cases of pneumonia of unknown ideology, unknown cause, detected in Wuhan city, Hubei province of China. As of three January, 2020, a total of 44 patients with pneumonia of unknown ideology have been reported to the WHO by national authorities in China. Of the 44 cases reported, 11 are severely ill, while the remaining 33 patients are in stable condition. According to media reports, the concern market in Wuhan was closed on the 1st of January, 2020 for environmental sanitation and disinfection. The causal agent has not yet been identified or confirmed. On the 1st of January, 2020, WHO requested further information from national authorities to assess the risk. National authorities report that all patients are isolated and receiving treatment in Wuhan medical institutions. The clinical signs and symptoms are mainly fever with a few patients having difficulty in breathing and chest radiographs showing invasive lesions of both lungs. According to the authorities, some patients were operating dealers or vendors in the Hunan seafood market. Based on the preliminary information from the Chinese investigation team, no evidence of significant human-to-human -human transmission and no healthcare worker infections have been reported. January 6th, 2020, New York Times. China grapples with mystery pneumonia-like illness by Sui Li Wei and Vivian Wang. Dateline Beijing. For days, Li Bin had what felt like a cold with a high fever of between 102 and 105, and he could not understand why he wasn't getting better. For four days, he went to a hospital, and a doctor told him he had a form of viral pneumonia without offering specifics. Mr. Lee, age 42, was hospitalized, then transferred to another facility and quarantined with other patients who had similarly unexplained symptoms. Mr. Lee is one of 59 people in the central city of Wuhan who have been sickened by a pneumonia-like illness, the cause of which is unclear. The cases have alarmed Chinese officials who are racing to unravel the mystery behind them in a region where the memory of an outbreak of the dangerous respiratory disease known as SARS remains fresh. SARS originated in China and killed more than 800 people worldwide in 2002 and 2003. At the time, the Chinese government tried to cover up the problem, which is exacerbating fear now about this new illness. Symptoms of the new illness include high fever, difficulty breathing, and lung lesions. The Wuhan Health Commission has said no deaths have been reported, but seven people are critically ill. On Sunday, the city government said they had ruled out as causes SARS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, bird flu, and the adenovirus. Workers wearing hazmat suits disinfected and shut down the Huanan seafood market in Wuhan, which also sold poultry, pheasants, and wild animal meats after the city health department said it traced many of the cases to it. Viruses that cause SARS and the H7N9 strain of bird flu in humans were first detected in markets that sold animals, and experts have said contact with infected animals was the likeliest source of transmission. Chinese health officials at first 
appeared to be closely guarding information about the illness. The Wuhan government confirmed on December 31st that health authorities were treating dozens of cases of pneumonia of unknown cause only after an emergency notice to city hospitals was shared on social media sites a day earlier, apparently triggering some public panic. But more recently, the government appeared to be moving more quickly to disclose information about new cases in a sign that it has learned its lessons from SARS, said Leo Poon, a public health expert at the University of Hong Kong. I have to emphasize this is a new disease and no one on earth has gone through this before, he said. Mr. Poon said a surge in cases in the coming week would suggest either that the source of the virus had not been eradicated despite the shutdown of the market, or that the illness could be transmitted between humans. Hope this pathogen is a less harmful one, so it would not cause a major epidemic similar to SARS, he said. It would be a nightmare for all of us. Wang Linfa, an expert on emerging infectious diseases at the Duke NUS Medical School in Singapore, said he was frustrated that scientists in China were not allowed to speak to him about the outbreak. Dr. Wang said, however, that he thought the virus was likely not spreading from humans to humans, because health workers had not contracted the disease. We should not go into panic mode, he said. January 24th, 2020, tweet from Donald Trump. China has been working very hard to contain the coronavirus. The United States greatly appreciates their efforts and transparency. It will all work out well. In particular, on behalf of the American people, I want to thank President Xi. I do not remember reading the WHO announcement or that first New York Times story, the first to cover what would later be called COVID-19. I probably first heard of SARS-CoV-2 listening to national public radio while riding a crowded train on my way into Philadelphia for work. Definitely not wearing a mask, definitely not thinking that my world, our world, was changing rapidly already around this new disease. I know it was on my mind before January 27th, 2020. That's the day I purchased hand sanitizer, Kleenex, and a five-pack of cloth masks from Amazon.com. Premonitions and origins. How do we come to know a disaster and our place in it? Can we ever know it from the start? A difficult couple of questions if the disaster is distant from us in time and place, but honestly, not much easier even if we live in it. I don't think we can begin to unravel these issues until we interrogate ourselves, until we ask what it is we wish to know about the opening act of a disaster. Which type of expertise matters most to us in deciding what an event, when an event begins or when it ends, but that's for later in this series. How fixed are we on a linear timeline? How many causes can we accept as crucial? For myself, I return frequently to September 11th, 2001. I was on that day flying to Chicago to work in the archives, studying the Iroquois theater fire, a disaster that claimed more lives in a building fire than any other in the 20th century. I arrived in Chicago after the North Tower had been hit and before the South, the buildings were standing. O'Hare Airport was closed. The departure boards told me all flights were canceled. I received a call from a friend who said only, everyone seems to be safe, call me later, and hung up. While riding the train into downtown Chicago, my brother called to tell me the South Tower had collapsed. I remember clearly looking around the train when he told me that, seeing everyone so calmly reading newspapers and magazines, this was before ubiquitous scrolling, and not understanding what he was telling me. 
For the next hour, I stood in a crowd gathered around a television in a hotel lobby in the loop. Finally, I asked the guy next to me, what is happening in this video loop? That's a plane flying into the World Trade Center, he said. I could see it. It had been described to me, and I still couldn't comprehend it. I drove from Chicago back to New York City two days later in a rental car, listening to nonstop radio coverage of what was already called 9-11. Sitting in an all-night diner where that loop of tape, the fireball, the debris, the original moment of the violence, played over and over. When I came to the city, I could see the smoke over lower Manhattan. I feel like I started to know the disaster then. The next day, I went downtown and saw debris and smelled the smoke that terrible, acrid, vinyl, burning, foul smoke. I spent the next years studying everything I could find about that day, reconstructing a timeline, reading the history of those towers, those innovative and truly experimental buildings, and I don't mean that in a good way, studying their many weaknesses. There were what are sometimes called premonitions of September 11, the 1993 bombing, for example. It was important for me to know but even today, when I watch that old footage of Flight 11 crashing into the North Tower, I think, do I really understand what I'm seeing? Fireball was the start of the violence in New York City that day, but that wasn't the origin of September 11. Wasn't that much deeper in the past? Wasn't it in the lack of adequate stairwells, the lack of evacuation planning, the incomplete fireproofing, the fire department warning city officials that these buildings were an impossible nightmare firefighting scenario? still matters who you ask and what evidence matters to you. I still need more time with this problem. Indeed, I never really worked it out before that first WHO dispatch told us about the pneumonia of unknown ideology. For the conversation today, I have experts return guests to COVID calls to talk to me about premonitions and origins of disaster. And of course, we're gonna focus on premonitions and origins of COVID-19. And let me introduce my guests who are no strangers to COVID calls. Monica H. Green is a historian of medicine and currently serving as the SUPI's visiting professor of the history of science at Stanford University. She specializes in the pre-modern period and global infectious disease. She's writing a book on the Black Death that draws on evidence from genetics, archeology span and historical sources to document the early origin and broad geographic extent of the second plague pandemic. Jacob Steer-Williams is a historian of epidemic disease at the College of Charleston, specializing in 19th and early 20th century Britain and the former British colonies. He's also a frequent guest host and contributor to COVID calls. Jacob and Monica, great to see you both. Thanks for joining me for this conversation. Hello. So let's jump into this conversation about premonitions and origins. And I know it might seem a little bit, um, odd to tell a September 11 story as we're trying to understand COVID. But for me, a lot of the same sense-making procedures were in, in play. In mm -hmm. Myself trying to make sense of what was actually happening and then sort of diving into ultimately a deeper historical analysis um, and finding layers and layers and layers as I tried to pinpoint what that disaster was about and when it had started, what its origin actually was. Um, but you're both historians of medicine and historians of history 
well before the 20th and 21st century. So you have a lot to say on the history, I think, of infectious disease. So let me start with a basic question. Um, and Monica, I'm gonna ask you this first. Where and when did COVID-19 start? Uh, where do I be believe it uh, uh, started now or where did I believe it started then? You've already answered, even by the, <laughs> your return question has got us going. So go ahead. <laughs> okay, so um, I have been paying attention to the COVID origins uh, stories from the beginning. Uh, because the way I have been teaching um, the infectious, uh, the history of in infectious diseases is always with origin stories. Um, so my perspective on the global diseases I teach is I'm looking at the circumstances of origin. I'm looking at the circumstances of local spread. But then I'm looking at the question of how does a local disease become a regional, a continental, a hemispheric, a global disease. Um, and so all, all those parts of the package are um, important and vital. Spillovers, so um, uh, viruses, bacteria, certain other um, microscopic organisms can spill over from one species to another. And they do that all the time, every day, and probably have been doing so since the beginning of life on the planet. Um, so that phenomena is nothing new. It's nothing unusual. The big question uh, uh, for us as humans is why, given the ubiquity of those processes of interspecies connections um, transfers, do some turn into pandemics and uh, the vast, vast majority don't? Um, and then, uh, and, and then just breaking that whole process down, then you can also say, okay, there are also a lot of diseases that are local um, that have no spread beyond a certain environmental, a certain ecological um, uh, circumstance. So what is it that can, what is specific about a kind of disease that can move out of a very contained, very specific ecology and say, okay, I'm just gonna go conquer the world. Um, so those are the kinds of questions um, I ask. I, my recollection is I created a file on my computer um, for COVID on the 20th of January of, okay. of 2020. So I assumed that I started hearing something about some kind of local um, outbreak, but a local outbreak isn't necessarily of global concern. Um, because there are, you know, as I've just said, there are many um, hundreds of thousands of, of, of local outbreaks. Um, so that's that was that was the question for me: is at what point do we start getting global implications? Jacob, what would you say? I mean, just to the open question, I really like the way Monica started it, both in terms of of geographical, you know, and sort of rings and thinking about, you know, importance as we go further out from locality to region to, to globe, but also, you know, introducing zoonotic spillover, which finding the origins of that, and we'll get back to talking more about that, of course, is important, but I guess not something easily documentable, certainly not, not of interest, mostly to scientists if it's happening all the time. Yeah, I, um, I think we, We've been talking a lot about in the last two years, 
the origin story in the singular of COVID. And, and I think that maps onto the kind of frameworks that we've used to study previous pandemic and epidemic moments. But the more I've thought about this in the last couple of years, I think I've really changed my thinking. And I think it's probably better now to think about origin stories in the plural as opposed to origin stories in the singular. We know mm -hmm. that pandemics are, you know, as Monica said, they're geographical, but they're also temporal configurations. Mm -hmm. and, and I've been thinking about that a lot, what it means to call something a configuration and not just a, an event. Um, but I think it's, it's not surprising that we want to isolate a singular cause and origin to, to this pandemic or to any other previous pandemic. And, and I think that's a legacy of a kind of reductionist causative set of theories from probably the, the, the second half of the 19th century with the emergence of the germ theory, with the emergence of laboratory bacteriology that was really quite obsessed with bounding diseases, infectious diseases first, in terms of singular entities, and then mandating almost that they, that they be linked to a singular cause, a microorganism. And, and we've been part of that worldview, at least in, in the West, uh, since that time. And I think it's what it's created is, is, is a series of ontological fallacies. And, you know, you don't have to talk to, you can talk to any disease ecologist today to, to know that framing a, a really complicated human, animal, non-animal, environmental thing like pandemic as, as coming down to a singular cause is, is really limiting your frame of, of bounding that object. So I think in terms of origin stories, they're what they've been used for in the past, and we've seen this replicated with COVID and thinking about COVID's origin is that origin, an origin story, to frame that in the singular, the thing that I don't want us to do, has been something that's been used to blame. And there's a long history there of blame and finding origin moments in, a pan, in writing a pandemic's history as a way for one group to blame another group. And that actually has much to do with what Monica was just saying about locating the emergence of a disease in a geography and bounding it in a temp temporality and then seeing how it spreads as a way to start to understand, but, but more importantly, start to blame. And, and so blaming, if we just view a pandemic origin story as a singular, it's bound up with blaming, but it's also bound up with, with this notion of bounding. And what I mean by that is is finding a way in origin stories, finding a way to conceptualize the pandemic into an event, to literally make it an event. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm, I'm really struck by two features of this. So we can't even agree today on, on what this word end means. And I know in the next 24 hours, Scott, you're going to plan, spend like plenty of time thinking about end with so many you know, brilliant people. But in the last couple months, and, and we talked about this last time that Monica and I were on the program, um, we've talked about what it means to call COVID endemic in the last couple of months and how dangerous it is to do that right now. So we can't agree on what end means, but we certainly haven't been able to agree on what start or what origin means. And I think it's because we're thinking about this in this very singular origin way. And, and what are we left with when we do that? We're left with blame and we're left with thinking about this, this disaster as one singular event that necessitates finding some singular cause. And I think we're, we're you know, the, the historians are partly to blame here. And I'll, and I'll totally take as much blame on this as, as, as I think due to myself as well. When in early 2020, 
you know, historians of medicine and public health were out there linking COVID-19 to influenza 1918-1919 to a singular event. They were linking it to cholera in 1831-1832 to a singular bound and blamed event. And what's yeah. happened there is I think we've we've spun ourselves, even in our historical framing of, of COVID, into this like really limited framework, which is to say COVID is a singular thing, which we know it's not. It's multiple variants. It's changing. It's evolving. And it needs to find a singular origin, which in the last two years of me listening to your guests on COVID calls, I mean, that's not the consensus either. So I think we need to reframe this and not just talk about a singular origin story, but to ask the question of what are the origin stories? Because if we do that, I think we we can strip ourselves away from the singularity of this ontology that we've inherited and maybe think and ask different questions, whether they be about power of framing narratives and whose narratives get to count and whose narratives are recorded um, and, and, and really rethink in a, in a different way what origin stories look like. Let me just linger there for a sec. Monica, go ahead. And, and well, actually, I was just going to throw in, and, and uh, we could just let linger as, as, a, as a term to think about now, is that um, I think it's incredibly powerful to stop thinking about epidemics or pandemics as events, as, as Jacob was just saying, and start thinking of them as processes. Hmm. So I'll just leave that there and we can come back to it. I mean, and, and think about this, like, and, and this isn't to pick on like my, my crew, my historians of medicine, because like before COVID, I still taught in this way too. And I, and now looking back, I just feel like so foolish of doing this. So before COVID-19 and, and maybe even continuing, I think most historians of disease and public health in our classes love to use this framework, which was a single origin a single bound framework. And, and that was one that I know Monica's shaking her head because I know you don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, never done that. But I think it's very popular still. And what I mean by it is thinking of epidemics as dramaturgical events. You know, that's something that Charles Rosenberg wrote about in the early, early years of the HIV AIDS um, crisis. And in and, and, and that narrative framing goes something like this, that epidemics appear on a stage in time and space they have characters, they progress to a climax, and then they end. And the assumption is that like both audience and cast and maybe even the stage sort of goes away, that we can somehow in our mind just like bound when we look at something in the past as a kind of disease epidemic event. And like one of the things that, one of the reasons why I love teaching with Monica's work and, and reading your work is because you just have refused to, to bound plague in particular with your work mm -hmm. in that sort of narrow lens. Mm -hmm. Let me follow up on one piece of this before we go any further, Monica. So you get the chance to come in. The um, president's you know COVID team finally hears from a historian and it's you. I would love that. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you met with them and you can't tell us. I don't know. But um, <laughs> Uh, and they bring you in and you say kind of what you've just been, you and Jacob have both been saying, which is, you know, search for a single cause, you know, the, the, the chastisement of this idea of a sort of a linearity um, there and a multi-causality. What's their response going to be to you? Because it feels to me that policymakers and, and I guess we could also, I don't know about epidemiologists, um, but policymakers are very uncomfortable with this idea of 
multi-causality, historical context, messiness. So I'm, wor I'm worried about that. I'm with you both on how you're describing this, but I wonder how those ideas can exist in the world of pandemic politics. Um, let me cut to the chase and say, I don't have an answer to that because uh, I recognize that their concern is intervention, their concern is action, their concern is funding. Uh, so with limited resources, where do you make um, an intervention? And I think this has to be a long conversation. I, I don't think that I have any business as a historian given, giving singular recommendations. What I want to do and what I hope people will start listening to is how do we paint that bigger picture? How do we actually grasp how big the problem actually is and then develop a way to um, uh, to prioritize, um, to decide, okay, out of the variety of things we have to be worried about, how do we prioritize? This needs, this needs action now. This one, because of the kind of process it is, we can go a little bit slower here, but we still need to keep it in the corner of our eye. Um, those kinds of things. But what I can, what I think is really, really harmful right now is talking about the pandemic being over because there's absolutely no sign from a biological perspective or from the kind of historical perspective that I do that it's over or even close to being over. Um, so uh, deciding on the terms of debate um, actually is the huge thing. And I would just like to say, I don't, I don't see a need to keep this um, confidential anymore. Um, I was actually on a WHO team, uh, a, a, a committee that was brought together in 2020. Um, I think we can, I think we got our first invitation and in maybe in April, we convened in May, June, wrote a report, it was never released. Um, but it was um, to talk about what can history contribute to pandemic planning. Really? And um, so clearly we didn't make a good enough argument um, to, for anybody to, um, to see the, the You, you the should have stopped at volumes one through five. You gave them volumes one through 50, didn't you? And then they said, we can't, because that's, that's how we, it works. We were never given an explanation about what oh, happened. To how interesting. But, the, um, that. Uh, but that, that is my bigger thing. And, and here I would just like to do a slight contradiction of what Jacob said and say that I do see a linearity in the sense of what has been driving my, all of this um, global comparative work that I have been doing. So looking at a variety of different diseases, precisely so the, um, the main diseases I have to interrogate as a pre-modernist can make, um, uh, can make sense. And so I can make sense of what I do in the classroom. Um, I have come at defining pandemics biologically um, through an evolutionary understanding that has only become possible in the last decade. So this is the, the kind of history I do has never been possible before. Um, and so that's the linearity. But the thing about evolution is it's not a theological linearity um, that, you know, anything alive today has had ancestors. Anything alive today has the possibility of creating offspring that will go into the future. So that's the linearity. But in terms of the direction in which that will go, 
um, or, or even the, 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 the inevitability that, um, that those lineages will, will, will continue. Um, none of that is given. None of that uh, is, is given, but that's the coherence. That's how pandemic should be defined. Um, as far as I'm concerned is looking at the pathogen, looking at the thing that's actually doing the destruction. Let me just pause here for a second and remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls and you're listening actually to the launching episode of a series of episodes that's going to run over two days, the Restoring Memory COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. And we've also been joined by an additional guest now who I'm happy to introduce, no stranger to COVID calls. Christos Linteris is professor of medical anthropology at the University of St. Andrews. His research focuses on the anthropological and historical examination of epidemics, zoonosis, epidemiological epistemology, medical visual culture, colonial medicine, and pandemics as events posing an existential risk to humanity Christos, we've jumped you right into, dropped you right into the middle here uh, of a conversation, as you know, from talking to Monica and Jacob, um, it got very involved very quickly in a great way. So um, I, I started with a, a kind of naive open question about when did COVID-19 start? Um, and I think you, you, you heard where Monica has been taking the conversation. So let me give you a chance to, to jump in here. Yes, thank you, Scott. And hi, Monica and Jacob. Apologies for the late arrival. I was having technical problems, which now <laughs> I, I should know better. I've, I've used the, the the stream yard already a couple of times. So anyway, so yes, that's a great question. And uh, when you sent this uh, over to us by email, it got me thinking. And <clears throat> uh, you know, my my immediate uh, kind of anthropological. Uh, <laughs> Uh, reflex there would be, uh, well, to, to question the question, of course, and the, to question uh, the question of beginnings. Um, uh, and, and this not from just a, you know, a, a devil's advocate kind of point of view, but, but from the long established anthropological um, tradition of trying to see epidemics as or, or pandemics not as events that just erupt in a given point of time but as phenomena are, that have a, very very complex drivers over decades or even centuries right uh, and, and this is what we generally call uh, based on Merrill Singer's theory a syndemic theory rather than one that focuses on epidemics. I think uh, the idea of the syndemic has been massively misinterpreted during this pandemic to mean basically a process of co-infections. That's not what syndemic theory is about. Syndemic theory is how different social and biological phenomena come together over a very long period of time to form systems that then lead uh, to outbreaks. Um, so if there, there there is a beginning of COVID, it's multiple beginnings, if you like, or it's uh, comings together of different systems um, of, um, well, social and biological systems where, 
you know, you would have, I don't know, uh, as as we assume that the uh, the pathogen emerged in China, you know, and I agree with Monica wholeheartedly uh, that uh, the emergence of pathogens is, is a very important process. Uh, we need to look at the conditions of possibility for this emergence, right? What made the emergence of this pathogen possible? And then, you know, the question of the anthropologists, and I, I guess historians, but I, I leave that to Monica and, and Jacob would ask is, you know, where do we start or where do, do we stop, right? Uh, 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 speaking uh, about something I know more, uh, the third plague pandemic, uh, which uh, with which I tire you endlessly, uh, you know, we could say that uh, the the third plague pandemic originated or began in Yunnan as a result of the Panthei Rebellion, the Islamic Rebellion in the 1850s and 60s, which then led to you know a system of disturbances demographic uh, and uh, interspecies and other that led to a pathogen that, of course, existed in these mountain ranges uh, of Yunnan uh, to spread uh, to a, a, a capable population so as to maintain it and then to lead its spread probably via the river system. I'm relying on, on Carol Benedict's uh, understanding of these two, Canton and Hong Kong. Um, Others may say, no, it's Hong Kong is the start of the third plague pandemic because it led uh, to the pathogen being able to spread across the globe. So, you know, it, and so it is British colonialism, which is the beginning, you know, the, the, driver, the driver of of the third plague pandemic. So depending on your perspective, you know, uh, people see different beginnings, but I think we need to keep an open mind and see that there are multiple factors that lead to the emergence of a pathogen to its establishment in a, in a given uh, region, in the case of the third plague pandemic, or its international spread. Uh, so I think it's, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, uh, something we really like to talk about in anthropology, it's like more like a kaleidoscope or, or a, you know, like a off, off beginnings rather than one beginning. Mm -hmm. Jacob, let me bring you in on this and thank you for that, Christos, because I mean, Part of this is, it seems like we're sort of following two threads simultaneously. I mean, we've got a, a sort of a pathogenic or biological story and then a human societal story. Mm -hmm. But of course the virus uh, or bacteria coexists. I mean, it's, it's a mediator in there too, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's maybe on its own with other species and then it enters humans and then it begins to change. So maybe there's, it's kind of three stories and again, sort of, it becomes difficult to, to decide which one you're going to track. But let me just stick with what I said at the top, which does a little violence to the complexity of this, I think. But um, you know, come back to this notion of the syndemic, um, the idea that you might be following um, certain vulnerabilities in society. This has been described with COVID as a way to understand why, for example, African-American population in the United States was hit so hard by COVID. And it's an exploration of longstanding systemic racism, which affects the health system, which affects public health factors, which then might make certain people in society more vulnerable when the pandemic arrives. So that's, I mean, it's a fundamentally social explanation. Do we have to choose between those two? Or maybe you can even frame that better than I just did. But I mean, listening to Christos and Monica, I, I hear them agreeing, but I also hear them saying, I would 
choose to follow different evidence if I'm looking for origins. This is something that um, in my in my book and you know spending ten years studying the history of typhoid fever, um, I struggled with, and and it's a it's a really deeply epistemological question in some ways. So you know the evolutionary biologists tell us that you know Salmonella typhi and its 2,600 cousins have been infecting humans for, you know, as long as human settlement has, has probably happened. And, and yet there isn't the, the name typhoid fever until 1829. It, it appears out of French pathologists looking in lesions and dead people's pyres patches of their small intestines. And, and there's not response until there's some kind of agreement with what that disease means. Um, probably not in, for another 20 years until the 1850s or 1860s. And does that mean starting the story in 1829? Does it mean starting it with, with you know, following the, the biology of the pathogen? Um, it's, a, it's incredibly complicated. Um, what does seem clear to me is that there is, there's, there's not enough work out there that does marry those two approaches. And, and maybe there are other approaches out there to, to marry with that as well in this like kaleidoscope model that I'm now thinking about that Christos has introduced to us. Um, but one of them that, that seems interesting, at least to me, is that, you know, at some point, and I, and I go back to what, how you started this program today, Scott, with, with thinking about some of the early reporting that, that happened. And at some point, there was this thing that emerged called SARS-CoV-2. There was a there was a human framing of what this thing is and what this thing means, and it wasn't singular; it was multiple. So this 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 one of the threads that we have here of like framing origin stories as origins and multiplicities, not just singulars. I think that maybe is a place to start. So it's thinking about the com- the biological complexity of what makes a a a, a mutation happen in any given, you know, virus or bacteria. But then it's also looking at this moment when like, when groups of humans decide what to call a disease and how to handle it, that's a different kind of origin, but an origin too, that's a cultural origin. And and that leads us down a path. It's led us down a path. Once we've started to frame, at least in the US or in parts of Western Europe, we, you know, we started to frame COVID as a particular political agent, we might call it. It, it led to very real public health interventions or lack thereof and individualistic behaviors that I think in some ways are overlapping with the real biological agent that itself is changing, but is also maybe different from it. Monica, let me bring you back in and just comment on anything that Christos or Jacob has said, but also to go a little further with this you know, trying to understand biological origins, if you come to some greater understanding of that, how does that then impact what Jacob's describing? Does that, does some greater degree of knowledge on biological origins and spread somehow shape the cultural understanding? Yes, absolutely. And I, I think we have a tremendous opportunity and I think uh, we have a tremendous obligation um, to think about how those come together and continue to come together and intertwine um, throughout the entire process of uh, of a pandemic. And um, just to give an example, so uh, we all know that, um, was it now two weeks ago, uh, there was this series of three major studies that came out about 
uh, the origin of, of, of COVID at the uh, Hunan market um, in, in Wuhan. And one of the crucial things, this, this is an argument had been building up since um, uh, the middle of uh, 2021, um, but it is, it's a fixture um, and, and um, aggressively argued in, in one of these new papers, which is that um, SARS-CoV-2 had a double origin, that uh, all of the phylogenetics of, of SARS-CoV-2 had uh, presumed that there were uh, two strains that were documented right at the beginning when they um, uh, sequenced the genomes in at the end of December and January um, 2020. Um, and they ended up being called lineage A and lineage B. And um, the argument was that uh, lineage A um, developed from lineage B. I mean, so the, the, the labels actually got uh, applied later. So that's why there seems to be a, a logical um, disconnect there. Uh, but the point is, is there's a new argument is that both of them um, uh, rep represent independent leaps from an animal host into separate humans. So the point is, is that lineage A is circulating um, in, in Wuhan, lineage B is circulating in, in Wuhan in those early weeks in December 2019 and January 2020. Lineage A essentially dies out. It's lineage B that has gone on to um, create most of the uh, uh, the global pandemic that, that that we're still living with now. If you go back and look at the genetics of HIV, HIV has also been documented to have emerged into humans in uh, four different times. Um, so four different transfers, and those are just the ones that have been documented. So taking those, and, and there's other examples um, uh, uh, as well, seeing that those processes of spillover, as I was saying before, happen multiple times, but even the transmission in human populations flare up, but then one of them becomes hugely successful. Why does that one become hu hugely successful? Is it just the biological characteristic of that one um, strain and there are arguments, um, you know, and and virologists will come in and 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 can talk about the um, the different structure of, of the genome. But those are all those other origins that Jacob was talking about. So all those other, you know, again, uh, us as 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 historians, we're always talking about contingencies. Those other factors of was there some other circumstance or were there multiple other circumstances? What were the circumstances that allowed this to thrive in human populations? That's what makes a pandemic. And it is all of those things that we have to look at. That is the big package. Um, and so anyway, all of this is to say, um, uh, I agree, but I but this is the way in which the biology, the biology is is part of, the phenomenon, and we need to take that as seriously as we take the the the, the demographics. So, um, when you were talking about the the effects um, uh, on minority populations in the United States, it's not simply the the problems with the healthcare system. It's the fact that racism has all already pushed a lot of 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 mi minoritized populations into service work 
where they're frontline workers, where they're constantly being exposed, where they can't stay home, where they can't um, uh, uh, engage in online um, teaching. So uh, again, those are those are all the ways in which the social, the entire social structure is creating the circumstance that is allowing the particular characteristics of that pathogen to thrive. Christos, let me bring you in comment on any any aspect of that and and particularly um, thinking because you all work we've been talking about I love talking to the three of you because you talk in a very fluid way about the present and also the past but I want to ask you what you think of the implications are of Monica's approach for history of history of infectious disease not just right now which is difficult enough to untangle but if you want to go back as you do it's the, let's say the third plague pandemic um, being able to unravel biological origin stories and then fold that into cultural histories to understand this question that Monica put very well, you know, why do some of these thrive, some of these strains thrive and, and others not, and not to just to understand that in a biological way, but understand it in a sort of a, an in, a complicated interrelated cultural and biological way. Yes. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> I've been I've been in dialogue with Monica about this for a very long time, and I, I think it is absolutely essential uh, to have this uh, uh, this aspect of the history of an epidemic or or a pandemic. Um, uh, my 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 real concern is that the two, if you like, if they are indeed two, you know, if the phylogenetic or biological history and the social and cultural history of an epidemic. In order for them to come together, we actually need a spillover event, right? When we're talking about zoonotic diseases. And the problem there is rather conceptual, if you, if you like, as um, Narat and others have shown, in that most um, virologists and, and a, a good number of epidemiologists assume that if you have a sick animal, you know, and a susceptible human, you know, then you have, you know, a spillover. So as long as you can show that there was a, a, a civet cat which had SARS, say in 2003, and a, a trader that was susceptible, that was in touch or in contact with the animal, there you have the smoking gun. But we know this is not the case, right? We know that sick animals and susceptible humans come, come in touch all the time or, or have uh, material proximities all the time without a spillover event. So I think that there we need the help of, of some new toolkit to help us understand you know, exactly how this works. And I, I really like this idea of the multiple spillovers. I think this is a great, um, and some of them being dead ends or stopping, you know, not, mm -hmm. not leading to a chain of infection. This is crucial. I also think that um, conceptual tools developed by anthropologists such as uh, Hannah Brown and Ann Kelly, who talk about material proximities rather than you know, this mechanistic idea of contact. You know, this is really crucial to understand the environment, the built environment, you know, the, the practices that happen, the spatial practices and material practices that may allow uh, you know, uh, say in the case of plague, go back to plague, more contact with the, the fleas, uh, wh whether these are human fleas or rat fleas. You know, it's not simply the existence of a rat with fleas and and a human in, in a room that leads to, a, 
you know, to an infection, let alone to an outbreak. You need, you know, some conditions of possibility, let's call them material conditions for this to happen. And we need much more interdisciplinary uh, research in order to, to begin to understand this. And I, I know a lot of people are, are, are doing this at the moment and, 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 and it's great. Um, one condition for this interdisciplinary research is that um, all sides take each other seriously. Uh, And this is very hard to achieve, given the hierarchies within the scientific world or academia um, about what are hard truths or what are superior uh, methods, if you like, and what are uh, auxiliary ones. Um, uh, I think there is great prospect in in developing this and uh, leading to uh, an integration of different aspects of uh, the study of epidemics um, in the in the future. Let me just do a quick reminder that you're listening to Restoring Memory, a COVID calls exploration of the first two COVID years. We have about ten minutes left in our conversation. Um, Jacob, let me let me turn it over to you for a second and see um, again if you want to comment on anything that Monica and Christos have been saying. I still want to get um, at least a brief round on why it matters so much or does it matter to engage in the in the lab leak um, controversy and discussion as much as we might like to have complex culturally grounded uh, stories there's historians exist in the world these narratives exist in the world and there's real danger of stories being co-opted for political purposes and some of them are, are pretty nefarious so I, I do want to get to that but how do you want to talk about that or do you want to go somewhere else before we start talking about sure. it? Yeah, no, I just um, just quickly echo, I think, the the potential. And, and Christo said it's already happening in some circles, but I think it, it's still existing in a potentiality moment uh, of this kind of multi, I'll resist the interdisciplinary, but multidisciplinary kind of work. Um, it's something that uh, Susan Jones, who's been a uh, uh, a, a guest of our show told me the first, uh, the very first coffee meeting we had to talk about um, my uh, my interest in, in disease ecology and the history of disease. She literally said, "This is the future. This kind of this kind of work is the future." Um, so, um, just kind of echo that. But but I am interested in, in maybe tackling a, a similar question, which is what's at stake in in addressing the question of who gets to who gets to decide origins. And, and that that maybe is, is an allied discussion. And, and we might look at this in a couple different ways. So one is that before the emergence, however you wanna frame that of, of COVID-19, um, one of the most pressing concerns in global health was global health inequality and addressing the social determinants of health. And I think reflecting on that the last two years, what's happened is, is both global health inequality has been illuminated, but it's also been obfuscated and, and I'm hearing, I've been paying attention a lot in my local community because at some level, like it's easy to get lost in the, in the global discussions. So, so often, like I keep turning to very hyper-local ones and, and in my community, no one's talking about raising vaccine rates. No one's talking about vaccine access or public health campaigns to increase what is in the U.S. South still a 50 to 60% vaccine acceptance rate. Um, no one in my community is talking about global vaccine ethics or what some of the roadblocks have been to the development and the rollout and the roadblocks. 
And so, uh, and, and I can't come back to anything else than like, this is the reality of the kind of treadmill that at least in the US South that we hopped on in early 2020 in framing a kind of particular origin story of COVID-19 and what it, what it means, um, at least in, in the sort of local place where I geographically am bound in the US South. And, and that's been, um, I think, bound with a particular way of knowing, a particular way of talking about a pandemic response of sowing the seeds of doubt of manu- continuing to manufacture doubt by bringing up terms and, and misappropriating them from the outset of pursuing a strategy of herd immunity, um, not in terms of how epidemiologists understand that term, but um, in terms of how m- much of the right in the U.S. Um, used that term of discrediting by late 2020 and into 2021 uh, the effectiveness of vaccines of continuing to blame, which I have like Monica, uh, a file on my computer that just has links and and personal notes of my own sort of trying to record this history of continuing to xenophobically blame either a single Chinese lab or a singular um, Chinese human animal set of practices, um, which Monica mentioned, you know, culminated in what is now post WHO peer reviewed published papers um, that's continuing to be part of the matrix for what this disease means, but also how we respond as individuals and as our communities. And so just to make a couple summary points about this, and then I think we should talk about this lab leak theory. So I think pandemic histories must be histories of who gets to narrate, who has the power to narrate and, and whose narratives push back and whose narratives are silenced. And it's only then that we can try to maybe address the multiplicities and um, of, of, of difference in origin stories. And the second point I think that I've been really trying to work out, and hopefully we'll have a piece out on this not too long, if I can figure it out, is I, I just think we put so much trust in numbers from, from early 2020 and what the numbers could tell us about the pandemic reality and the pandemic futures predictability of numbers. And, and it's one thing, Scott, you asked me um, several months ago what, what COVID calls has, has meant to me and, you know, being a party, even in a very small way in this program. And, and what's, I think I figured it out, what's mattered so much to me is that it's, it's about stories at, at the end of the day. And, and, it's, and it's a rejection of just the numbers. And, and I think we've, we've really gone down this path where our framing of this pandemic has been one around numbers and it's, it's not been around people. And, and I think the devastating result of that is there are six million people dead worldwide, and and several thousand every day, and and we're we've we've entered whether we like it or not or want to disagree with it or not we've entered a new phase of of pandemic denialism. So, Monica, let me ask you if you want to comment on on either of those points or anything that's that's out there, we might not have time to talk about lab leak in, in detail because I like, you know, the directions that Jacob is is taking us with his questions too. Uh, well, I, I, I would just um, second really all the um, points that he's been making. One of the things that I have, uh, I'll, I'll get to the lab leak in a, in a second, but one of the things I, I, think is desperately needed is in all discussion about um, the pandemic and all thinking about the pandemic. And to some extent, it has to happen in uh, in terms of 
policy and decision making is that we have to think about the local and the global all at the same time. Because even if the origins of this pandemic, any pandemic, had to at some level have been local, so that the spillover events, whatever they were, um, once we get into an integrated population that is connected by uh, transportation, by aviation, um, I, uh, my dog wants to um, add into the conversation here. Um, we never escape, we will never escape from COVID um, until all of us are free. Um, and that's that's the thing that needs to happen. So, so um, uh, considering what's happening locally in, in, in South Carolina, where, where, where Jacob is, I'd have to say, and this is part of what I would like everybody to think about when they're making individual decisions, when they're contributing um, to, to, to larger discussions, is how does it all add up? How does it all add up to a global phenomenon? And the global phenomenon is that um, SARS-CoV-2 is still circulating in human populations, as you know, uh, um, as well as anyone, Scott, because uh, because of what's happening right now in South Korea, um, Hong Kong, and um, and other places. As Christos and I um, will uh, would be able to go on at length. Um, it has passed over into animal populations with who knows what consequences. Um, we this is a global phenomenon, and this is this is the first pandemic where we have um, the capability of actually watching in almost real time all the global effects of this disease. Um, so and 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 we've had the power of genetics right from the beginning to tell us this story, to give us that through line, um, to give us a, a, a way to see the connections, to see the, 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 the patterns of spread, um, to see you know, rises and peaks and, um, uh, and valleys. We have to keep the local and the global in dialogue at all times until this is over. And um, as I said, it's a long way from being over. In terms of the lab leak story, um, I would just say this very quickly. Um, we have to interrogate to, to, to find more ways to talk directly and brutally, honestly, um, about what role any of us play in pandemics. Um, and my wearing a mask or not wearing a mask is something that I control. This is my role. Um, my, you know, uh, in, uh, use of, you know, various parts of the economy is is something that that I control. The lab leak um, is is partly a debate that virolog virologists are having, and to a certain extent should be having, because they're figuring out how viruses work. Um, this is an an ongoing science experiment for them. Um, that they don't have control over, they can't close the lab door and um, uh, and and go home. It's been carelessly handled, precisely because there is not also engagement with rhetoricians. There's not um, engagement with with um, people, many of whom you've had on your show, Scott, who tell us about the power of disinformation. 
Mm -hmm. Tell us about the, 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 the ways rhetorical arguments can be, uh, can be used to distort um, both information and argument. And is it even a question? Um, anyway, there's, there, there's a, a, a lot more that, that, that could be said, but there is greater expertise to analyze and discuss and dispel um, uh, a lot of nonsense that gets more oxygen and airspace than it ever should. Um, precisely because um, uh, we're not talking frankly enough about um, how misleading, uh, how misleading it is to even have a discussion that has no substance. I think that's powerfully said. And Christos, I've heard the disinformation that Monica is talking about here in reference to the lab leak controversy. Um, I've heard that described also as a pandemic. And I've also heard that described as syndemic. Uh, and so I wonder, again, just to bring it back to you, again, from an anthropological point of view, is that just a further elaboration? Is that a further evolution because of new technology um, of what pandemics mean in a, in a, in a fuller sense? It, you know, culturally now that, the that we should use a term like pandemic with disinformation and that when we talk about origins, we now have to also manage conspiracy origins as well and do this extra hard work to try to tie those back again to spill over and, and i mean it's a lot of work to do but now there's another layer of research on top of it i feel like particularly based on what monica has just been saying uh, absolutely but i think that um essentially it's not so much different i mean it's different in in, in quantity or in, in volume from what happened at the end of the 19th century and beginning of 20th century with the third plague pandemic, which was also a, a field of endless disinformation and misinformation, conspiracy theories, xenophobia, uh, people uh, claiming that uh, Kinyun in San Francisco was a federal uh, uh, kind of uh, conspiracy uh, kind of agent trying to to convince California that there was a plague when there wasn't a plague in order to destroy its economy. You know, these are part and parcel of modern pandemics. And uh, Robert Peckham, for example, has written a great paper on, on uh, telegraphy and how it spread disinformation. And there was, you know, a syndemic, if you like, between the third plague pandemic and information about it through the telegraph. So, you know, we tend, we always tend to think in whichever part of modernity we stand, that our era is like no other before it. Like I was is... trying to pull a fast one on you there and, <laughs> and you called me on it and I love it. I think, I think that, you know, if historians a thousand years from now, if we have managed not to destroy the planet by, by then, uh, we we look at this era, you know, as and, and wouldn't, you know, they will definitely not make much of a distinction between SARS 2003 and SARS 2, you know, 2020. You know, this would be probably kind of the the coronaviruses pandemics, but probably they would also see this as a much larger pandem pandemic era, you know, at the emergence of epidemiology or the emergence of the life sciences, because we are still at the emergence of the life sciences, right? Mm -hmm. You know, from a historical perspective from a thousand years onwards, you know, there, is, there isn't much of a difference between 1920 and 2020. You know, these are negligible time periods 
in the development of sciences. So uh, I think that looking at science and technology from, you know, if we can afford, if we allow ourselves this kind of macro historical perspective from the future, you know, we may be able to take a more, uh, if you like, uh, or a, a, a less uh, enthusiastic standpoint about the uniqueness of our situation, you know, Twitter or social media. You know, they're all part of more or less the same technology that does more or less the same thing, more amplified or in slightly different ways, but I think in a comprehensively similar manner across that period. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank my guests, Monica Green, Christos Linteros, and Jacob Steer-Williams. And you've been listening to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. And we've been talking about premonitions and origins. And I feel like we've, we've really just gotten started. Uh, we will have to reassemble this group in the not too distant future. But I want to thank you all for your time today. And I want to remind the audience that you're at the beginning of a two-day, if you choose to jump on this with us, a two-day odyssey of COVID calls, discussions, um, which we're going to try to map out as much of the terrain of the last two years as we can. And as you can see, we talk about the present for about 10 seconds with these experts, and they've got me back centuries, and then now they've got me in the future. Um, and of course, that's why it's important to talk to experts like Monica and Jacob. And Christos, you can catch COVID calls live on Twitter at US of Disaster, and of course, on the COVID calls YouTube channel. And stay tuned at 7 p.m. Eastern time. I will be talking to John Gorka and John Gorka will be performing. Singer songwriter John Gorka will be performing as well. So please do come back for that. Monica, Jacob and Christos, thank you so much for your brilliance. Great to talk. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Mm -hmm.